John 6, and we're going to start in verse number 60. It's a very long chapter, a lot's going on in this chapter, but uh, verse number 60 is where we'll do the, the main thrust of the text here. And it says this, many, uh, many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words which I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we look to your word. And what a uh, prompting question for all of us. Would we go away also? What would it take for us to walk away? Lord, I pray that you'd help us this morning, that you'd speak to hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to ask this question. In verse number 60, it says that, <clears throat> that it says, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Verse number 61, Jesus says, does this offend you? And I want to ask this question, uh, what do you do with hard preaching? What do you do when something maybe rubs you the wrong way? Maybe, maybe something uh, uh, doesn't quite sit right with you. And by the way, I want to say this. There's a difference between hard pre- preaching and harsh preaching. And there's a difference between uh, 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 also within what's being preached, right? Sometimes we preach very hard preferences, and very timidly doctrine. And, uh, you know, I, I've heard preachers, you know, who definitely preach in the flesh and, and offend or run off people, and they'll say, well, I guess they can't handle hard preaching. No, they can't handle stupid preaching. Um, <laughs> um, but here's Jesus. Nobody can question Jesus' motives. Nobody can question the content. Here's Jesus giving them some very tough truth, and the question that is posed is, is you know, does this offend you? You know, it's interesting how offenses come in. Did you know every person that ever got saved had to come to a conclusion that what they thought was wrong? That can be offensive. To tell somebody they're wrong is a very offensive thing, is it not? Um, Think about the day and age we live in. It's actually uh, posed as unloving and uncaring to tell somebody that they're wrong. Listen, I'm sorry about how you feel, but two plus two can never be five. I'm sorry if that offends you. You know, you say, well, that's, that's silly. Who would really say that? You'd be surprised. But let's talk about other things. That's true. You see, um, I was really debating uh, even bringing this message uh, last Sunday night because this was kind of on my heart as I was thinking of uh, what we're going to go into on Sunday evenings. We're going to be diving into some, some rather hot topics. What does the Bible say about these things? Because you and I are going to face in our lives people who, quite frankly, are living contrary to Scripture. You'll come across Christians who are living contrary. 
you'll come across philosophies and idea in our culture that are contrary to Scripture. And the question is, are we going to change with the times, uh, or are we going to figure out what the Bible says and live by conviction? And with that, we have to ask ourselves this personal question. When things get tough or when it rubs me the wrong way, if it's from the Bible, if it's Scripture, am I going to follow though it's tough, or am I going to take the easy route and walk away? That's where these disciples came to this conclusion. They came to this point where they thought, you know what, Jesus, you've pushed us too far. At this point, we're going to have to walk away. And so I'm going to unpack some of this uh, passage and see what was actually going on. But notice verse number 66. From that time, from this point, this time, his disciples went back and walked with him no more. There came a point where these disciples... As they're on their journey in their Christian life, as they're on their journey of fellowship or discipleship, following the Lord, there came a point where that's it. This is what you could say is the high watermark in their Christian life. Have you ever, uh, you know, you ever looked at a river that rises and falls? You can see how high it goes, right? That's the high watermark. That's the, this is the high watermark. John 6, 66 right here is the high mark for these uh, disciples. Their spiritual life peaks right here. From here on, it goes down. They walk no more with Him. I wonder what the high watermark is in our lives. It's kind of interesting, and I'm not one that puts a ton of stock into like the numbers and the way the verses match up, but it's interesting that, uh, that this is uh, chapter 6, verse 66, 666, when they stop following Jesus. Kind of interesting. But anyways, um, so, so the idea here is in 65... This is the furthest that they're going to go in their Christian life. 66, something changes. Something goes somewhere else. You know, I think about what's the story of your life? What's the high watermark? You know, sometimes we think back, you know, we think about our lives or where we're at. And, and if you're thinking about this idea that, you know, there were times when I was more excited about the Lord than I am today. There were times when I read my Bible more faithfully. There was times when I prayed. There were times when I was just more excited about the Christian life than I am today. This ought to concern us because we're not going up. We're not pressing on that upward way. New heights we're gaining every day. There's something that is disrupting it. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm not saying it's hopeless. I'm not saying that you've passed that high water mark and now it's all just going to be downhill. What I'm saying is this should be a check to us to say, what is going on in my life that I need a little bit of revival? We talk a lot about revival. We throw that word around. But let me just say this. I do think it is a great need of the hour. We need a revival in our spirits. We need a revival in our lives. We need a revival in our walk with the Lord. Because what, what are we talking about? We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about them walking with Jesus. And there comes a time where, where, where we get discouraged and our walk kind of wavers a little bit. And, uh, and really, it's simple. If we look at it this way as our walk with the Lord, if you kind of started getting some distance in your walk with the Lord, guess what? You can catch up. You can get back to where you were. You can get back to walking with the Lord. I like what it says in Revelation when, uh, when Jesus is talking to one of the churches, and it says this. It doesn't say you lost your first love. It said you left your first love. You know what the indication is? If you left something, you can come back to it. That's why he says, repent, therefore. Come back to it. And uh, so here are these disciples. They're met with this decision. What are you going to do with the information you've been given and many of them chose enough's enough. We're not going to go this way. We're going to go to the preacher down the road that's going to, you know, that's going to uh, tell us something nicer. He's not going to tell us the hard truth. Uh, uh, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? 
you know, we want to do it out of a spirit of love. We want to be biblical about all these things, and that's why, you know, I, I, I sure endeavor to make sure that we're, I am biblical, and I'll give you my opinion on things, but I try to say, you know, this is my opinion, but then I get to the Bible, and I'll say, this is the Bible, and I can't budge. Amen? But what are you going to do? You know, maybe sometimes I think about times even in my own life uh, uh, when I just so desperately sought the Lord. I think about times when I gave myself to seasons of, of fasting and prayer and just, just, just had that sweet fellowship with the Lord. But then I, I think about times where just life gets busy and, and I get discouraged and maybe some things come my way and, and uh, you know, uh, what, what, what is it in your life? What was that high watermark? I hope, I hope that we have not yet reached it. I hope that that, that, that river is still filling up. And I hope that, that we are striving more and more. You know, John 6 is a very inter- interesting chapter here. In this chapter, we have the feeding of the 5,000. They followed Jesus out in the wilderness, and, uh, and you know, they'd gone so far out that if they let, went back, they'd faint in the way, and uh, we have nothing to feed them. And in the very beginning of the chapter, they find a lad with, uh, with some fish and some loaves of bread, and they had the people sit down, and they organize them, and, they, and Jesus blesses it and feeds them. This is, a, this is a very popular story, a popular chapter, and, uh, and you know, why was it so popular? I think what's interesting about this chapter is this is a, uh, 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 it marks a clear line of, of demarcation in the popularity of Jesus. Here he is, there's 5,000 men plus women and children. There's probably upwards of 15,000 people here who came out to see Jesus and to hear of him. By the way, when they initially followed him, they didn't come for a miracle. They didn't come to be fed, yet he fed them. I believe this, they came the next day to be fed. But initially, they just came out, and they were just following him, and they're, they're, they want to see the teacher, and, and what does he have to say? But, but there, there, there's a moment here that his popularity shifts in this, this, this line he draws in the sand, this decision that he prompts them to make. You know, uh, sometimes we get very caught up in the miracle of this story. We'll dramatize it with the kids in Sunday school, and we'll do different things with the stories we tell it. But, uh, you know, sometimes we don't really see what happened as a result. What, what did this story result in? What was the aftermath? So remember what happens at the end of the day. The people were so transfixed on what Jesus could do. Uh, they were so amazed at his ability to feed them uh, that they wanted to take him and forcibly make him their king. In fact, if we back up to verse number 15, it says this, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. So he, he pulls aside. They, 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 they wanted to just take him. Look what he can do. Surely this guy's the leader. Surely this guy's the one. You know, he's the answer to our Roman problems. He's going to overthrow the Roman uh, Empire. He will be our king. And they're so caught up in the moment. So much so that Jesus had to even take his own disciples as they got caught up in that same moment. And he tells them, he says, guys, I want you to hop in this boat. I want you to go to the other side of the sea and I'll take care of the crowd. And he sends them away. He's saying to them, you know, this is not the time. Will he be the king? Yes, but not yet. You see, he still needs to teach them that Calvary must precede kingship. The cross must precede the crown. And, 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 and he must suffer many things. He tells them this over and over again in his ministry. Now is not the time. 
And so in, in somewhat of a rush, as he tells them, look, this is not going to happen. This is not how it's going to be. He sends them away. Go to the other side. Hop in the boats. Go to the other side. And that night, Jesus went to spend a night alone in prayer. And while Jesus is there praying, the disciples were there out at sea. <clears throat> Jesus looked out at the, over the sea, and he sees the disciples. You can just see them there as he's praying. They're, they're, they're out there, and they're fighting the waves, fighting the wind. You know the story. By the way, Jesus sees you in your storm. That's the truth we ought to never lose sight of in this passage. I love the story. I love in Matthew's uh, account of it as, as Peter's there. and They thought it was a spirit. And when he see Jesus, he says, If it be thou, bid me to come unto thee on the water. I love the zeal of Peter. And I love how uh, you know, he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't say, Lord, if it's you, make the storm go away. No, no, if it's you, bring me closer to you in the storm. Wonderful lessons to learn. But what did he do? In the midst of their storm, what do you do to calm down their fears? He showed up. Brother, aren't you glad that he shows up? Aren't you glad that he meets you in those times? We can go around the room and have testimony after testimony of God just showing up in those late hours at those times when, when, when we felt like that, child, that trial was so intense and the, the difficulty was so strong and, and Christ just shows up with an answer. Wonderful, wonderful stories. Those are the things, by the way, those are those faith-building moments that we can look back on and hold on to. God did those kinds of things with David. God did those kinds of things with Saul, or with, with Paul, rather. Uh, God did those kinds of things through the, these, these heroes, if you would, of the faith that, that uh, were building aspects that God would use in their lives that they'd look back on. If, if, I remember when God strengthened me here, I need that same thing to happen over here. The boat, what's interesting is when Jesus walks on water, and Peter goes and joins him. The next thing that happens when he calms the storm is they're immediately at land again. They're just there. Where's there? Well, they went to Capernaum. Capernaum is, was Jesus' adopted headquarters. When Jesus, in his earthly ministry, he would stop frequently in Capernaum. That sort of became like his, his main, uh, the central hub, if you would, of his ministry. So he's there the day after. The, the day before, he was feeding probably uh, 15,000 people. Uh, the next day, he's here on land in Capernaum. Uh, now he's back there in the synagogue. And the people, uh, they got up uh, the next day after the whole night, and they wondered where Jesus went. They got in their boats. They went over to the other side. And Jesus is there. Look at verse number 22. Let's just kind of get this context here, what's going on. Verse number 22, they're wondering how in the world Jesus got there. The day following, when the people which stood um, on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save the one where his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, howbeit there came other boats from uh, Tiberias that night unto the place where they did eat bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people saw, therefore, that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, and they took shipping, uh, took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And verse 25, and when they had found him uh, on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou thither? They're wondering, how in the world did he get here? Uh, they wondered, uh, uh, they wanted Jesus to enable them then to do the works of God. They wanted to do the miracles like he did. Verse number 29, then Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Excuse me. Carrie, uh, can you give me a tissue? Sorry, I'm struggling with my cold here. Um, you know, it's so often we want to do, you know, we, we like to do the, 
the, uh, the wow things. We like to see, look, this is amazing. Let's do this. Let's do this. So Jesus always brings it very simple. And he says, well, this is the work. You want to do the work? Uh, what are the works? This is the work. Here, this is the work of him, uh, of God. If you want to do works, uh, do the work. Um, believe on him whom he sent. Excuse me for a second. Uh, so he says, you know, believe on him whom the Lord has sent. That's it. You know, you might, you might ask it this way. People will say this, what must I do to be saved? Well, here's the work. Believe on him whom he sent. That's the same message. Uh, believe on him. That was what Jesus was trying to get them to do. Why did he do the miracles and why did he teach the lessons? All these things was for them to believe on him. Think about that now. It's simple. They wanted to do miracles and he said, you want to do works? You believe. Believe on him whom they sent. Verse number 30. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What doest, uh, what dost thou work? So, so now the next thing is, well, if we're not going to be able to do the miracles and you want us to believe you, then what are you going to do? Show us a trick and we'll believe. By the way, he just fed 15,000 people. Show us a trick and we'll believe. See, there's always, we always want something more. When is enough enough? That's what the Bible says, the just shall live by what? Faith. Faith. When's enough enough? So verse number 31, they then tell him. Now they're kind of almost um, prompting him. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread uh, from heaven to eat. See, Moses did it. Why don't you do more of that? Verse 32. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven. Wait a minute, man, doesn't it, it come down from heaven? You know, no, no, that's not the heavenly bread. That was a type of the heavenly bread. That was a picture of the heavenly bread. That was still physical. So he says this, Moses gave you bread, not the bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. By the way, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Anybody know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. Kind of interesting. God gave the true bread from heaven. Verse number 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Well, who's that? That's Jesus. Verse 34. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread. If you're not getting it, let's just make it very clear. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the spiritual bread that comes down from heaven. He is the bread. You come to him, you're never going to hunger. You believe on him, you're never going to thirst. Verse number 36. But I say unto you that ye, that, uh, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. So you've seen the bread from heaven. You've seen the bread from God. You've seen the one sent from God, and you still don't believe. By the way, again, how many miracles are enough to prove this thing? See, it's not about the miracles. It's never enough because men doubt. We don't, we don't understand this. It's a faith thing. You must believe on him whom he sent. Verse 37. <clears throat> uh, verse 36. But I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. And, the, and that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. What a wonderful promise. Him that comes to Jesus, he's not going to cast out. Verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. 
And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. And he's telling them the gospel message. I am the bread. I am the bread. The bread sent from heaven. And if you eat this bread and you believe on Him, you'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. By the way, let me just say this. This is not teaching transubstantiation. This is the bread from heaven. It's a spiritual thing. This is something uh, believing what God had sent coming down and it says He will give to them eternal life. It's, it's, it's spiritual. By the way, if he was teaching transubstantiation and he says, I want you guys to eat my body. For those of you who don't know, transubstantiation is the Catholic doctrine that uh, when you take the communion, the cracker and the wine, it literally becomes the body of Christ and it literally becomes the blood of Christ. All right? They're practicing cannibalism. Is what they are, uh, and, and that's how they receive Christ. Okay? Um, when Jesus was at the Last Supper with his disciples and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Did you know he was still there physically in his body? And his body was not broken, and they did not eat him, they ate the bread? Obviously, it's metaphorical. Okay? So he's telling them now, you have to receive this spiritual bread from heaven, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So here they are wanting a sign, they're wanting a trick, they're wanting direction, they want to do the tricks. And he says this very offensive thing. You have to believe me. You have to receive me. It's a very interesting statement that Paul makes in Galatians. He talks about by adding anything, by adding any works to the gospel, he makes the gospel less offensive. That's an astonishing thought. In other words, the less I'm involved in the gospel message, the more offensive it becomes. Did you know it's offensive to tell somebody there is nothing you can do to save yourself? You see, some of us have a little bit of pride and we don't like to get something for nothing. I want to earn everything I have. And we get the same idea when it comes to spiritual things sometimes. But the reality is this, the gospel is something that God did for you that you could not do for yourself. But if I can do something, then, 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 then I have now have a part in it. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that, that it's not of works lest any man should what? Boast. There's boasting if I had a part in it. You get to heaven and say, how did you get here? Well, let me tell you what I did. No, no, it's a very humbling question when you're in heaven. You say, how did you get here? That is an incredibly humbling question because you can say, I did nothing. I could do nothing. Christ did it all. Think about that. So they're coming to him and they say, well, we want this closeness to God and we want to do the signs. Well, if we can't do the signs, then, then show us a sign and, and show us this, heavy, this bread from heaven. And he says, I'm it. Ta-da! <laughs> I am the bread from heaven. No. Guys, you got to believe me. I am the one that provides eternal life. No. That's offensive. 
after we've been doing the law of Moses, after we've been so faithful to synagogue, after we've been so faithful in the sacrifices and the, and the feasts and all these other things, after we've done all these things, you're going to say, it's just this? Just believe? It's offensive. And they begin murmuring. And so he goes through this whole thing about how he came down from the Father. And, and he says it almost, like, almost as though to say, you know, what if I ascended in front of you? Is that enough? What if I went up in front of you? At what point is it gonna, enough going to be enough? I'm get, what I'm giving to you is spiritual. Aren't you getting this? Aren't you understanding this? But they weren't getting it. So I want to answer a couple questions. And then I'm going to analyze the answer that Peter gives. Why do some people turn back? Why do some people hit this high water mark and follow him no more? Why do some people go this far in the Christian life and then say, enough, I'm walking away? Why? Well, some people are just bread seekers. They're bread seekers. What can you do for me? What do I get out of it? They're the kind of people that are going to call you up and say, I guess your church just doesn't care about me. Now, should we serve and should we care and should we love? Absolutely. But folks, those are the people that you'll never be able to do enough for. There comes a point. Every man, Galatians 6, every man must carry their own burden. Wait a minute, I thought it says bear you one another's burdens. Yes. But then two verses later, three verses later, whatever it is, every man must carry their own burden, meaning that's not a permanent thing. As a temporary thing. You see, you go through a hard time, we ought to be there for you. If one man hurts, the whole body hurts. If one member hurts. If one member rejoices, the whole body should rejoice with it. And there are going to be times where we carry one another and we help another. But that is for the purpose of, here's the picture in Galatians 6, the idea of, of, of bending over so you can unburden yourself onto somebody else so you can catch your breath. Right? Some of you military people know, know what that's about, right? Uh, you go on those long, uh, Isaiah, you go on that long ruck march. Uh, you need to plan a break in there somewhere. Or, you know, everyone has their limit, right? I have to change my socks because I'm getting blisters. I have to have some water and hydrate. I have, to, I have to unburden myself for a minute so I can keep going. Folks, that's the Christian life. There's times to unburden, but at the end of the day, you must carry your own burden. That's why you have the PT test to show that you can carry your own burden. If you can't pass the PT test, the idea is you're not fit to go out to battle because someone else is going to have to carry your burden. And so, 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 so here's the idea. How do I get off on that? Oh, bread seekers. They're bread seekers. They showed up. This is interesting. I'm curious. And sometimes, by the way, we're going to have some people that come in the door. They're curious. They're kind of, what's this all about? But let me just say this. If you're only coming because you're getting candy and a goldfish... You're a bread seeker. Now, am I against that? You know, hey, you want to have a good teen activity? Have some pizza? They're going to show up. My purpose is not to give them pizza. My purpose is to give them spiritual bread. And be very careful when we talk about this stuff, because what you win them with, you have to keep them with. That's why it's so dangerous about these entertainment-driven churches. Because what are they? They're bringing in a bunch of bread seekers. Well, as long as you keep my attention, as long as you keep me entertained, as long as you keep me feeling good, 
as long as you're doing something for me. But what happens if now you need to do something? (laughs) I guess you guys don't care. Which I think even brings back a bit more basic question is, who is the church really for? Yes, we are to serve, and we want to win people with our service, and we want to show them the love of Christ and all these things. But to what end? That they too may become disciples of Jesus Christ. That they would follow. See, they looked at Jesus, and they, um, they, they, or they, 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 they were bread seekers. They wanted to see another miracle, another trick. Some people, they serve God, But they're not really serving God. They're serving God out of pretense because of what it looks like to others when they're serving God. In other words, whatever it is we're trying to get out of it, whether it's the bread, right? I'm getting some reward out of this, whether it's the praise of men. The Bible talks about not serving as eye pleasers, um, um, but serving Him from the heart. You know, I think about like... Um, like a, a valet that goes to park your car. You're going to notice how a valet is supposed to they dress really nice. Because <laughs> you're about to trust your car with this stranger, okay? They dress nice. They're very respectful. Sir, ma'am, let me ask you. Why are they so respectful? And why do they dress up? And why do they try to look their best? What are they really trying to get? Trying to get a tip. They really don't care about you. They really don't care about your car. It's a job. I don't fault them for that, but that's what it is. Sometimes, if we're not careful, that's how we serve in the church. Look how good I look. Look at how special this was. And then, and then we get offended. Nobody noticed what I did. <laughs> Can I just give you a little secret about the Christian life? When you get the praise of men, you lose your reward in heaven. Remember those Pharisees. They prayed in the public square. And Jesus said this about them. He said, they have their reward. Sometimes we read that, it's almost like they're going to get what's coming. That's not what Jesus was saying. They have their reward. What was their reward? To be seen of men. They got the reward. But when thou prayest, shut the door. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. When When you give your alms, which is giving to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand does. You know, when you're parading around, look at everybody I'm about to give to this poor person. You got your reward. When I fast and I disfigure my face, oh, I'm fasting. Oh, look at this spiritual guy. You have your reward. You see, what is the reason for it is the idea. What is the purpose behind it? And if we're not, so if we're not careful, it's like, oh, you know, Christians are so nice. They sweep the floor. They straighten the hymnals. But why were they serving? Were they bread seekers? Were they serving some sort of praise of men? Were they serving some, for some other thing that would fill the physical need, if you would? Here's what these people were doing. They were saying, Jesus, we're following you as long as you feed us. That's as far as we're going. They were people that ended up turning back. See, these people, there were people that turned back. There were people that just simply turned out. They showed up. Look at verse number 45. John 6, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, And they shall be all taught of God, 
Every man therefore that heard and hath learned of the Father cometh to me. So those that heard and learn, but then there are those that are going to hear only. You see, all these people heard the same message, did they not? All these people heard the same things Jesus was saying, and yet some, many of them, turned away. Not all of them, but many of them turned away. The hearers only, these are those that are in self-delusion. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Here's the, here's the kicker, deceiving your own selves. Here's the interesting thing. When you know to do good and do it not, it's sin. But in order to do that, you are actually deceiving yourself. When you know what the Bible says and, does the, and do the opposite, you're actually, you can't trust any of your judgments now because you are in self-deception. You have become a double-minded man, which is unstable in all his ways. Because you know what's right, you know what God says, you've been a hearer, but you're not putting feet to it. You're not exercising it. And they were taught of God, but they didn't believe. They heard, but they did not respond. And, uh, and so, so it's interesting, it's intriguing, it kind of pro, uh, 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 sparked a thought, a curiosity, but did it really change me? And by the way, I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've known people. Boy, they were on fire for the Lord. They led this ministry. They taught in this school. They did this, that, and the other thing. Today, they don't even dark, darken the doors of a church. Here's the question. What happened? Where did it fall apart? They, they turned out, but they went away backwards. You see, some... Some turned out because they were hearers and not learners. Some turned out because there was free food. Some turned out, some turned back. Some in the Christian life just treadmill. So what do you mean by that? I didn't know that was a verb. You guys know what it is on a treadmill. There's a lot of movement, but are you going anywhere? You see, I have a stationary bike at home that I haven't actually used in a little while. But I'll get on that thing and I'll work it out for a while. And I'll get off that, and I'm all sweating. And I'm like, according to this, I just rode six miles. But did I actually go anywhere? No. I was just stationary. I just stayed in this little small spot. And if we're not careful, that's the Christian life. A lot of movement, a lot of activity, but are we actually going anywhere? Jesus was on the move, and Jesus was going. He went to the other side. And if we're not careful, we, uh, you know, here, here's, the, here's the problem. They stopped in the Christian life. And many of these people, this is exactly where they're at. They stopped in the Christian life. They stopped following Christ. Now, they, they kept on with their religion. They kept doing things. They kept moving they kept their jobs going. They kept, they kept worshiping to the best of their understanding, but they did not follow Christ. They're just going nowhere. They, they're moving, but they're going nowhere. They're treadmilling. Why did they even go out into the wilderness? You see, they looked at Jesus, and here's what they said. You're not the guy because you're not what I expected. It's not what I had in, envisioned. Week after week, these folks went to synagogue. And the guy in the, in the synagogue would pull out the Old Testament scrolls. And he would turn and read from the prophets. And they're reading these encouraging passages like when Messiah comes, right, he's going to take ownership of things. 
Uh, Isaiah, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Oh, we can't wait till Messiah comes and takes over the kingdom. And they have all these promises they're looking for, and they look at Jesus, and they want to forcibly make him king, because surely he's it. He doesn't get it, but we get it, and we're going to make him king. He's not what I expected. See, when you're walking in religion and not in Christ, it's like walking on a treadmill. And when expectations are not met, well, here's what happens. He's not the guy. We go way backward. And we follow no more. Look at verse number 66. From that time, from that high watermark, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So the question is in verse number 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? The question is posed, what will you do? And folks, when we look at the scriptures and we, when we're dealt with hard truths and we're, dealt with difficult, uh, we're dealing with difficult things, here's the question, what are you going to do with the information you've been given? I love the definition given in, by John in John's gospel of discipleship. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Those Jews which believed on him became disciples by continuing in his word. Let me ask you this question. Do you need to know everything in the Bible to be saved? Do you need to know everything in the Bible to be a follower of Jesus or a disciple? No. But I will say this. You better get settled in your heart that thy word is truth. And when I come to a crossroads, no matter how unsettling it is in my heart, let God be true, but every man a liar. I'm going to follow Christ. Then are you my disciples indeed. I've seen a lot of people go away. I've seen a lot of people go back. 2 Timothy 3.13, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Did you know those that claim to speak for Christ, who are uh, deceiving many people, they themselves are deceived? I personally do not believe false teachers are actually like intentionally going out hoping to deceive people. I believe they're deceived. And it's causing them to deceive many, and that's the day we live in. And it's causing people to go back, go backwards. They're deceived. 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. And then he lists a couple other people. See, Demas went away. Demas went backward. Demas stopped following. You'll see many go back. But the question is, what will you do? You see, we can look around in, in our church's short history, and we already have some that have walked away. Now, I hope they don't fully walk away from the faith but they've walked away from what we're trying to do. And if we're trying to stay faithful to the Word of God and we're trying to stay faithful to the Lord, you know, you do have to ask some questions. Why'd you walk away? Now, I'm not going to go so far. There are some churches out there, well, they went out from us because they were never one of us, you know. Uh, I'm not going to say any of that kind of stuff. I hope they're following Jesus. But if you leave this church and follow no more, you've hit your high watermark. 
you've hit your high watermark. And we're going to see people that were once serving the Lord faithfully and fervently that, that all of a sudden have nothing to do with Him. And, and what happened? I mean, I've seen people that, that were pastors that aren't even in church today. I remember when I first went into ministry, there was a friend of mine that I really looked up to, a fantastic preacher, and uh, served the Lord. He went and took his dad's church, a small, struggling church, and, and uh, he became a, a deputy sheriff and, and was going to do that while he tried to build this church. Struggled with a closet drinking problem. Before long, destroyed his marriage. His wife left him. Out of the ministry. Doing his own thing. I don't think the guy even goes to church anymore. What happened? What happened? I mean, it hits all, small and great. What were you doing it for? We're going to see many go back. And by the way, let me ask this question. What makes you think you're any stronger than them? I remember I, remember I heard of a story. Um, some of you know the preacher, a very famous preacher in fundamentalism. He got mixed up with a, with a minor. Committed a felony. Ten years in prison. I remember when I caught word of it, uh, uh, a lot of people were like, oh, I saw that coming, and, and everyone's thrown under the bus. And, and, uh, and, you know, there were definitely some signs there. But I remember my first response was this. Lord, if he could fall, with all that influence, with all those people in his church and all that, who am I? Let me say, that's my response. Every time I hear of a preacher falling, everyone loves to throw the stones and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and yeah, you know, the Bible talks about those that, you know, if, if an elder sins, you know, rebuke him uh, by, by multiple witnesses that everyone would fear. This is something that should be called out and it ought to be called out. But I tell you what, I don't get any pleasure in that. And I don't, I don't say, ah, I knew it. No, I say, that could be me. That could be me. Take heed, every one of you. Lest I also be tempted. I'm stronger than that. I'll never fall into that. You know, that self-righteous pride. Tell you what, you're the first one on the devil's list. The devil's like, try me. Let's see how far you can go. See how far we can push you. What makes you think you're stronger than them? What was it that kept Peter and those other disciples following Jesus while all those others left? Look at what it says here. Jesus looks to his disciples, asks this very prompting question. Jesus says to the twelve, will ye also go away? And by the way, can you imagine the disappointment in Jesus' heart? All these people following, that is what you call a big day, a high day. This, is, this would be like everybody working really hard. We've canvassed the doors. We've prayed. We've, we've, we're having this huge day in the community. And, and hundreds show up to our church. To our little church, we end up having to, to have service on the grass out there. Everyone's under blankets because there's so many people. And uh, we're like, man, that's a great day. And we can't wait. Next week, we're planning and organizing with kind of the core of our church. How are we going to minister to all these people? And then the next week, nobody shows up. That'd be a little disappointing, right? You follow up. Everyone's ghosting us. No one's answering their doors. No one's answering their phones. Like, man, here's Jesus. Does a miracle for all these people. He, get, he comes to the point of invitation. Believe in me. 
and they all walk away. He looks to his disciples, and he asks this question. I don't think this was an unfounded question, because here they are, probably shocked, sitting there thinking. We already saw that many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Here's his disciples sitting here, thinking through this. And I imagine this is a very quiet time. And here's what Peter says, the designated spokesman. Then Simon Peter answered him. And I think this was kind of a contemplative response. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Notice the way Peter worded that. He said this, to whom shall we go? To whom? See, you'll know you're always on the brink of failure when you're asking what instead of who. You're looking at the circumstances instead of the person. And he didn't say, where should we go? He said, to whom shall we go? In other words, there's always going to be a person. There's always going to be someone you're following. To whom shall we go? See, we can be assured that we're going in the right direction when Jesus becomes the only option. So many times Jesus uh, is, is, is one of the options. He's secondary or he's kind of, the, you know, uh, finally at the last option, I'm going to call on Jesus. No, no, when he becomes the only option, that's my only hope, my only, my, my only security is Christ. You see, that's the problem with American Christianity today. When was the last time you prayed for your daily bread? When? We understood in the Bible days that uh, you know, bread was good for like a day because <laughs> it actually had nutrients in it. <laughs> and so they pray for their daily bread, the daily provision. No, no, we, we get our monthly bread, our biweekly bread, our annual bread. When's the last time you prayed for your daily bread? See, when we do pray for that, it's because he's our last. Uh, we, we, or when we do pray for our daily bread, it's because he's our, you know, it's our last option. That's what we're down to. <laughs> Things are tight. But Christ needs to be our only option. We wonder why we're so, uh, you know, we wonder why so readily he becomes disposable in our lives. We just put off, well, you know, it's just church. Well, it's just, you know, we need to get back to needing Him. I love the song that we sing sometimes, I need Thee every hour. Boy, if that's not the testimony of my life. I read my Bible this morning. I'm good for the day. <laughs> Till the next hour strikes. Uh, I need something else again, Lord. Do we need to lose all of our resources and all of our crutches for Jesus to get where He really belongs in our life? Sometimes. See, Jesus must be my only option. To whom shall we go? I don't understand everything. and I don't, When I look at all the options, I, I think, Christ, you're it. That, that, that information, that truth that you gave sat unsettling with me, just like with all these other disciples. And uh, I don't get what you're saying, but the reality is this. Where else would I go? And that's the challenge, right? When we're dealt with these difficult truths, the, the, the real reality is this. Where else are we going to go? To whom shall we go? So often, we, uh, we perceive our needs, but we really don't know what we actually need. Jesus knows what we actually need, and Jesus is the one we actually need. What will keep us from turning back? Jesus must be your only option. Secondly, the Word of God must be your only resource. Notice what he said. To whom shall we go? For thou hast the words. The words. 
Thou hast the words. Over and over again, you're going to find old Gen Genesis to Revelation. What you're going to find is the authority and the impact coming always back to the Word, the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. I saw today, um, uh, you know, those Facebook shorts or uh, uh, the short videos that kind of circulate or there's YouTube ones and there's all these different little short because that's the intention span we have these days. Uh, no one's going to sit down and watch our 40-minute sermon online. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, this guy is talking about, guys, you know, I saw a sign today, and I wanted to show you guys. I, I saw a sign. God gave me a sign today. And, and there's this van parked in the parking lot that says, Jesus, Lord of Lords. Like, you and your signs. This is the same guy I think I mentioned him a while back. I don't know why he just pops up. And because I looked at one, they, they all pop up on my feed. And I'm like, okay. But, uh, but you know, he was, trying to, he was in like a, a podcast interview of why he believed the Bible was true and trustworthy. And his response was, because I just feel it. Wasn't that nice? How about when you don't feel it anymore, like these guys just didn't feel it anymore? Then what? To whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. It's the word of God that teaches us who the Son of God is. It's God revealing himself to us, showing us uh, what we need. See, you show me, by the way, what you do with your Bible, and I'm going to show you what God's going to do with you. You see, God's not going not, not to pull you out of a void, out of a vacuum, and do something great with you. It is my, it is my bread. It is my, my, my walk with Him. See, we don't read it because we don't need it. If you need it, you'll read it. When Jesus becomes your only option, you'll read it. Do you hunger for it? Do you memorize it? Do you apply it? Do you put it in your life? Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy command. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Sanctify them through thy truth, Jesus said to the Father. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharp than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What do you do with your Bible is going to show what you believe about your Bible. The Word of God. Do you hunger for it? Do you thirst for it? See, we don't because we're full on junk food. You ever tell your kids, you know, oh, can I have a Snickers bar? No, you'll ruin your appetite. Because if you just had a Snickers bar, you're not going to want to eat your broccoli. Which tastes better, by the way. Okay? Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Why don't I hunger and thirst? Because I'm full of junk. I'm full of the world. I'm full of junk food. We must be people of the book. Listen, your wit, your education, your personality, they're not going to do it. It's the Word of God that gets the job done. Jesus must be your only option. His Word must be my only resource. And eternity must be my focus. Notice what Peter said. For thou hast the words of eternal life. 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Here's Paul the Apostle, and he says, Demas hath forsaken me. Do thy diligence, he was telling Timothy. Drop what you're doing. Drop what you're doing and take care of something. What world did Demas love? Here's Demas who forsook following Jesus, forsook serving the Lord because he loved the world. When we think about that love for the world, what world did he love? Was it the cosmos? Was it the world's systems? Uh, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passed away and the lust thereof, but he the will of the Father abideth forever. 
Is that the world we're talking about, that he fell so in love with the world? What's interesting is the word used for world here, as demons love this world, is the lesser used Greek word, and it's the word uh, aeon, where we get the word eons. You know what that's referring to? Time. You know what Demas sacrificed following the Lord for? I choose now instead of later. I choose living for the here and now instead of eternity. I, I choose to live for this little thing called life. What is your life? It is even a vapor. Appears for a little while and vanishes away. I'm going to live for this, the temporal, the temporal bread versus the eternal bread, the bread of life. Um, uh, you know, I like what Tozer said. Simply, he said, we can wait. We sacrifice the future on today. That sounds like, that sounds like politicians. My children are so far in debt already, and they haven't even started working jobs. Thank you, politicians. See, we can live for now, but can you live for the then? There was a man by the name of Arthur Stace. He was born in a drunkard's home in 1885. By the age of 12, he was living on the streets. His job to feed himself was to be a lookout at the brothels. He soon turned to alcohol. He lived in Sydney, Australia. He joined the military, but then dropped out because of his alcoholism. When he was 45 years old, he went to a church service in 1930, and Arthur got saved. Rough life of 45 years. He went forward, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. He had nothing to offer. Arthur came with nothing. He was illiterate and he could not read or write. He had failing health because of his drunkenness, but he's now saved. He heard a sermon on eternity. And Arthur was so moved and he, and he, and he got a hold of that idea, this thing of eternity. And around Sydney, Australia, he started writing. He learned how to write the word eternity. He couldn't read or write, but he, he knew the word eternity. And he started writing that everywhere. And he had a notable um, a way that he wrote it. And he wrote eternity everywhere. And he was basically graffitiing everywhere before it was called graffiti. And he'd mark up the place. To this day, they have just a couple of originals of his handwriting writing the word eternity. And that's, it's actually in like a museum there in Sydney. People know about this guy. He couldn't do much, but all he could do is remind people of eternity. 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 He died in the 70s, I believe it was. But he had left a notable impact. Fast forward, how many of you remember Y2K? Okay. Getting ready for Y2K, we didn't know what was going to happen because we started relying a lot on computers and everything. And we thought, what's going to happen when, when the numbers turn over and the new millennium takes place? And, uh, you know, they, we thought everything's going to get, like, wiped clean, reset. We're going to go back to the Stone Age. So people are stocking up. Some of you still have canned food in your basement from Y2K and uh, water and all this stuff getting ready. And, uh, and uh, so what's interesting is, is with all eyes on Sydney, Australia, you know, every place has their time zone when the ball drops or whatever, we're celebrating New Year's. Well, it was going to turn New Year first in Australia. So all eyes were on Sydney, Australia, as they're broadcasting the countdown for the New Year. And as that clock counted down, year 2000 approaches. Somebody had lit up the sign in, in this man's handwriting, Arthur's handwriting, eternity. And the whole world was looking at Sydney, Australia, across this, their famous bridge there, 
and reminded eternity. What if the world collapsed right now? What if the world came to an end right now? What if Christ came back today? Eternity in mind. And what a reminder. I know it's something simple, it's something little. This one man thought, there's something I can do. I can just remind people there's an eternity. There's an eternity. There's an eternity. Have you ever thought about that? What would it be like if we lived for eternity? Why would we live for eternity? What would we do? You ever heard uh, celebrities or different musicians will say a phrase like this? I sold my soul to the devil. Have you ever heard that? As silly as that phrase sounds, that is amazingly common. And somebody had, these people somewhere along the way had an experience where they feel like that's exactly what they did. You know what they did? They made some sort of deal with the devil, so they thought, sacrificing their, the future of their soul for the here and now. Covetousness. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and death doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 6, 3 through 11 talks about, take heed, beware of covetousness. Beware. See, these things are going to, the devil's going to use to rob us of this idea. Here's Peter. He says, the best answer he could possibly be given. To whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. Christ must be our only resource, our, our only um, option. His word must be our only resource, and eternity must be our focus. Eternity. Why should it be that intense? Folks, eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. What are you doing for eternity? You see, sometimes we can get so caught up in these petty things. Well, I just don't like the preacher's opinion on that topic. Okay, but what about eternity? Well, I don't like what the Bible said about that. Okay, but what about eternity? I don't like that truth. What about eternity? I don't like this or that or the other thing. And, and folks, all these reasons why people will go away and people will turn away, what about eternity? Or is that really more important than the souls of men? Is that really more important than your walk with Christ? Is that really more important for what God's got, called you to do? Eternity. Let's have a word of prayer. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet, heads bowed and eyes closed.